This whole episode is a thirst trap. Oh my god, Chris, we're actually both on at the same time well, for an interview. Don't speak too fast. You never know what, what technology has in store for us. True, but we now have the recording right now to prove. We, we do. We were in the same <laughs> we were in the same riverside room in our studio together at the same time. How are you? I'm okay. Tomorrow is my last class of the semester, but then also my last class for the next nine months because I'm on leave next semester. I'm so excited. You're not on sabbatical, <laughs> you're on leave? I mean, is there a difference? I don't really know what the difference is. I feel like here they call it leave. Oh, here it's sabbatical because they expect you to do shit and write a report about it. I mean, well, I don't have to write a report about what I did, but like there better be additional things on my CV. Oh, yeah, they, like, you have to basically say, I want a sabbatical so I can go do this thing. And then you have Mm. to write a report on what you did. I have to do that in the upfront to, like, when you apply for leave. But I don't, I mean, maybe there is a report. I don't know. I'll find out. But right now I'm just luxuriating in the knowledge that I don't have to teach for nine months after tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah, so I I applied for my second sabbatical uh, recently. They said, well, you have to supply the report that you provided for your last sabbatical. And I'm like, I don't remember writing a report. So I'm looking, 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 and they're basically like, well, you know, they're not giving out too many sabbaticals, except unless someone has, like, a grant or something that they mm-hmm. need to do. And I'm like, well, I have that. They're like, well, you're a shoe-in, then just go ahead and do this, even though it was, like, a week late, because I was like, oh, my God, I don't have any of these reports. So I wrote my report for the last sabbatical right now like yes, mm-hmm. last week for to apply for the next event i went back and i was like did i even say i was gonna do a thing i thought it was just to leave but i did your diary today i said i was gonna finish a book and i was like well shit i did finish a book but not during the sabbatical but i did finish it before my next sabbatical so i mean that's funny. what mine's gonna be like i wrote hopefully Eight of ten chapters during my leave. I have one chapter that was supposedly done, and then I decided to add a section, which you and I talked about. Which is now another chapter, right? No, 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 no. It is not another chapter. I've already added a chapter, and I need to not do that again. I need to control myself. It's amazing reading books and looking at books and trying to write them, because the hardest part is keeping the narrative flow in your head. And, And my book was like, 11 chapters and that was impossible and then i go look at other people's books and i'm like four chapters six why did i do 11 chapters i think i could hold it together for four and i think i could write four chapters so maybe i need to like you could do two books four chapters each rather than one book at eight to 12 chapters something i don't know i do have publishers that i met at the triple a who i would like to talk to we're recording an interview now though i'm like totally digressing into my own shit so he hasn't but, even gotten into the to the waiting room so i'm but, and we haven't I, seen each other we've been interviewing know, separately for so long and, and i and i think listeners do like this is important right publishing your mm. your books like so one of the things i have learned the the way the deals happen basically you go to these publishers at these conferences you tell them what you want to write and they make arrangements and they some of them send out your proposal for peer review some of them mm-hmm. also will send out your your book if you ask them to but surprise to many people in the industry 
your your book itself is not always peer reviewed. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, lots of publishers don't send them out for peer review unless you specifically ask them to. And some of the publishers that we're most familiar with are more money oriented than they are product and quality. So they don't really read any of them. So some like the ones that I published with Mellon, Paul Graham yeah. McMillan and Rutledge. Yeah, mine, my proposal was sent out to three folks. So I got three sets of, of reviews on the book proposal. At least for me, they will, they will have people read it. But I think personally, I'm going to want folks to read individual chapters, particularly as they fit with their expertise. And, and my publisher does have like little grants where you can apply and it's, the bar is not high uh, to get money so you can pay those folks because, you know, it's labor and they deserve to be compensated for their labor if they're reviewing this chapter that they don't even get their name on. Yeah, anyway, no, that, that, that's important. I had to hire my own editor because mm -hmm. I wanted that service that the publishers don't provide. Yeah. Um, so my next book, I'm going to go back to an academic press because I think from what I've heard, uh, even though, like at first I wanted to do a trade book, but now I realize I may get more traction from working with an editor in academic press, someone who actually yeah. is interested in what I'm writing about and reads it. I don't think the editors I've worked with before have ever even read yeah, I mean, that's, that's the interesting part about mine is that it is an academic press, but it's going to very clearly be for a public audience. And so I'm finding a hard time maintaining maybe not necessarily the narrative, but the tone to make sure yeah, well, I'm going into the weeds just enough, but not too much. Anyway. Anyway, yeah. We, so we are bringing Asher Rossinger back. We had him back. Friend of the, the pod. Uh, so we are welcoming back uh, Dr. Asher Rossinger. As I slur my words, apparently my... Almond vanilla tea is boozy? It's not, but slurring words. <laughs> um, he is an assistant professor of anthropology and biobehavioral health at Penn State University. He is also the Ann Atherton Hertzler Early Career Professor in Global Health and the director of the Water Health and Nutrition Lab at Penn State. He has published widely in many, many journals. He's well-funded through NSF and uh, I know he's got some new projects that are in the works as well. And uh, when we had him on, we were talking about secondary data analysis, but we'll actually have him here talking about primary data collection and analysis this time around uh, in, in the world, water insecurity, the impacts it has on health. And so he's got a new paper out called Cross-Cultural Variation and Thirst Perception in Hot Humid and Hot Arid Environments, Evidence from Two Small-Scale Populations, which is in our home journal of the American Journal of Human Biology. So let's bring both of him in. See what let's happens. Bring, let's bring, uh, <laughs> I clicked one. What's up, Asher? Hello, can you hear me? We, we can. can. There yeah. were two of you. There's still one of you in the lobby. I like to replicate myself. and Apparently. You know, is that how, how you I'm get so all productive. the work done? I just have I two say, people. Like, you <laughs> it's getting ready to say. Now it is all making sense. Because this, <laughs> this, was the, this was the theme we, the last time we interviewed Asher was like, we were like, fucker, you are publishing way too much to be on this podcast. How are you, Asher? <laughs> I'm good. Good. You know, the sun is shining a little bit which is nice for the winter in uh, State College. We don't get as much sun during the winter as you might hope. Yeah, I, I have avoided driving through that area of the country this time of year many times in my life for, for all those reasons. How's your hydration? How are, are you thirsty? I'm not thirsty. And in fact, I'm having a nice herbal tea to improve Cheers. that. 
And for the kids out there, we mean there is no metaphor, there is no subtext, there's no ambiguity. Asher's a good-looking guy, but he's not trying to be thirsty. In that sense, we are talking to him about hydration thirst. So much setup for that. Oh, my gosh, my mind things. didn't even go there. You didn't even get it, did you? This whole episode is a thirst trap. Exactly. I mean, do you remember? Do you not remember Asher is the original dad joke guest? So, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm well aware of Asher's dad jokes. (laughs) It's a sickness. I mean, honestly, like you'd think that you would get over it, but you, you, it only gets stronger. Also, so Asher knows this is the first time Chris and I are interviewing together in how long now? In like a month, because we we kept we kept having a lot going on, and then we would just screw up our schedules. So fortunately, this I feel honored. The world has gone to shit and come back again since we talked to you. So how did co- how has COVID treated you? What have you been up to? COVID, you know, we were pretty lucky throughout COVID in the sense that for the first two and a half years, you know, my partner and my my daughter and I did not get it until this summer. And then, you know, we all got it, unfortunately, right after. I was super cautious for so long. Um, and then we, we made our Kenya field work happen by being extremely cautious this summer so that we can protect the community that we work with, which is highly marginalized in Northern Kenya. And then when I got back, we had waited so long because my daughter is four and a half and they didn't have the under five vaccine. Well, she got her second dose of the vaccine. Two days later, we had her fourth year birthday party. And the very next day she tested positive for COVID and you know, since I, I love my little girl so much, two days later, I tested positive for COVID. But at least, you know, she had had the vaccine and whatnot. And we were all lucky in the sense that we haven't seemed to have any lingering sequelae associated with COVID. I got back to running a week afterward. In terms of coping through the, the pandemic, it was certainly hard, especially the first three and a half months when we didn't have daycare. My partner and I both work at, at Penn State and we to and we were both teaching at the time. So we, we would wake up at like four or five a.m., write for two hours and then just trade off in two hour segments so that we could get, you know, work done and teach. And it was a you know, I'm actually grateful for that extra time that I had with my daughter because otherwise she would have been in daycare. So it really forces you to slow down and think about what are the things that are important to you. And you know, what we do for a living, we do uh, because A, we're passionate about science and we love it and we think about the big questions and it, it makes you excited. Um, but it is a job, right? It's a way to like provide for yourself and your family. And there are larger things that are, you know, important. And during a, a global pan, well, you don't need to say global pandemic because that's a, a, a double thing that I hate, like an ATM machine. But during a pandemic, you realize that you know, your family is really important and you want to spend as much time with them. So we got through it. Um, luckily, I, as you know, the last time we talked, I feel like this is a kind of a nice natural extension. I think we talked a little bit about that secondary data sets paper. So we had a lot of data that we had collected in both Bolivia and Kenya the summer before everything went to, to crap. And so we spent a lot of time analyzing data and writing up papers. Um, Every, you know, something stalled, but uh, by and large, we were able to continue the momentum and be really thoughtful in the way that we approach questions. Um, yeah, so, you know, made it through. And then I also, obviously, we were being super cautious. 
I, I ran a lot beforehand, but now I run even more and I'm still doing that. Um, so yeah, trail running is a big part of my life. And actually after this podcast, I'm going running because <laughs> I, I didn't get a chance to the last couple of days, even though I had aspirations to. But. Uh, well, that's really good to hear. And your story is familiar. So when my husband got the first dose of the vaccine, it was the same day he got exposed and contracted to COVID. Um, and this is, of course, this was the, the Delta variant, so not Omicron. And I had had mine for about a week and a half at that point, and it managed to protect me from getting Delta, despite that, you know, very short window. Anyway, anyway, it's really wonderful to have you back on to talk more a bit about your, you know, primary data collection and then turning it into publications rather than the secondary data, which has been hugely important for folks, that paper. I don't think you probably realized how important that paper was going to be. <laughs> the upcoming pandemic that people weren't aware of at the time. Uh, I, I'm sure it became a guide for a lot of grad students. Anyway, but we want to talk about the new AGHB paper you have about thirst perception and, and you know, prenatal exposure. Before we dive into the details, uh, you look at two different populations in this work. Uh, so you work with the Chimani, who we've talked about on this show numerous times with a lot of different guests. Uh, but you also work with the Dasanach, who we have not heard so much about. So I was hoping that maybe you could Tell our audience a little bit about that population, where they are, how you got in touch with them, you know, those kinds of fun details that don't really make it into a publication. I started working with the, the Dasanak in 2017. They're a semi-nomadic pastoral population that live in northern Kenya. So I think a lot of human biologists are familiar with northern Kenya, the Lake Turkana region, because of the human biology Turkana project that uh, Paul Leslie and Michael Little and many other human biologists, Ivy Pike, have been associated with. But they live on the west side of the lake, and the Dasanich live on the east side of the lake. So it's actually much harder to get there than it is to Turkana County. So they're actually in the Marsabit County on the east side of the lake, um, right up, nestled up against the Ethiopian border. This is what they call like the cradle of mankind or humankind. There's two of them, which is kind of confusing. One in South Africa and then one in Northern Kenya and Kubifora. I have some, uh, I have University of Georgia grad student colleague who was there, um, doing paleoanthropology during grad school and then worked there as well, um, with his advisor, Rene Bobay. And, you know, when I was at the CDC, you know, they've been working in this area. You know, there's been a, research program there, you know, the first Homo erectus footprints and all this stuff since the 60s and Nario Kotome boy, all these things that are like just so important to, you know, biological anthropology and human evolution. And they'd been working there and hiring a lot of local Dasanich to help with different components of the paleo and archaeology research. But the there's a local community that lives there and as they were working there year after year, the local community is like, you know, we're here. Like, <laughs> it'd be great if you could interact with us a little bit more. So they reached out to me and um, my buddy who was there and he was like, you know, it'd be great if we could do some human biology work as well and integrate and ask some of these deep time questions um, that are so important to human evolution with this, you know, community that lives there right now. So um, they reached out to me and I went out there. Me and Herman Ponser both went out in 2017. Um, I, at first, was like, I can't do it because I am i don't know if I'm coming back to academia. And uh, so I gave him Herman's name because I knew that he worked with the Hadza in Eastern Africa. So he understood the context. 
So we ended, then I was like, actually, I am coming back. <laughs> so uh, they brought us both out in 2017, just started hanging out. We didn't have IRB, so we didn't do any sort of data collection. But we were chatting with people and trying to understand what are the major pressing environmental and health concerns. And my research is all about water, and it's incredibly hot there um, and dry. And I'd been working in the hot, humid Bolivian Amazon. People were telling me, you know, we don't have enough water. Water insecurity is a big problem. So is food insecurity, malnutrition. And then they were telling me about some of the water-related issues there as well. And then over the next year and a half, we started, you know, getting all the documents in order to get the human subjects permissions, both at the Kenyan level and in the United States. So it took us a good amount of groundwork to get that field site up and established. And then in 2019, we started a longitudinal study with the Dawsonish the Human Biology Project, although we kind of oscillated between different names. Um, but it's a collaboration between Herman Ponser at Duke University and me here at Penn State. And we're trying to understand these long-term perspectives in water insecurity, food insecurity, nutrition, human energetics, movement, looking and integrating environmental data, uh, weather data, water quality data, and how they adapt to this hot, arid environment. So the, this puts a lot in, into perspective, right? So, and I'll ask you about this again, but I know that there's a field school that you sent an ad out for recently that we sent to our students. So listeners should be aware of that, and we'll come back and get details on that in just a second. But this study reminds me in a lot of ways of when uh, the early sleep studies started coming out because we were like, wait a minute, are you kidding me? It's been 150 years that we've been doing anthropology and we haven't studied one of the most basic things that humans do, sleep. And and here again, I'm like, read your paper and I'm like, holy shit, I never, like, is thirst environment, what? Wait, so like, I, I'm not finishing my sentences on purpose because that was my experience of like, how did we never think of this? So tell me, like, what, what your study is examining how early life exposure, like prenatally, to water quality affects thirst perception in adulthood. So how, how'd you guys come up with what seems in retrospect to be an obvious idea? So there's been a lot of foundational thirst research. Um, in fact, there's a, but it, it was done from more of a nutritional perspective. And a lot of the, all of the research before this one has been done either by kinesiologists or uh, nutrition scientists in labs. And a lot of the foundational work is, was done, you know, in clinics with like six white people. Um, and they will either experimentally manipulate, you know, their hydration levels and then ask them about their, their thirst perception to kind of try to understand those dynamics. And those, those studies are incredibly valuable to understand the mechanisms. And when you experimentally manipulate a person's hydration, status, what does that do to the way that they perceive their, their, uh, their water needs? So the idea for this paper came out of, I wrote a 2020 paper called Biobehavioral Variation in Human Water Needs and thinking about adaptations and early life perspectives um, and life course perspectives as well. But that was more of a theoretical paper, and I used some of the animal models that have looked at this question from a more developmental origins and health and disease perspective, where they can experimentally, you know, manipulate and dehydrate pregnant rats and pregnant lambs 
um, to see how that affects their offspring, which you cannot do in humans because that's super unethical. And they had some really fascinating fetal programming related findings. And so I, you know, I was trying to think like, how can we test this in a way? And obviously there's a lot of future directions that we want to go with this research in terms of thinking about longitudinal studies and, you know, following pregnant women and their water needs and their hydration status while they're pregnant and then seeing how that affects birth outcomes and then their kids' hydration responses, but not doing it in a way that we're like manipulating anything, but just trying to understand that variation and using exposure to their ambient environment as those types of exposures. There's also some other uh, literature, um, including, uh, I've got a colleague here at Penn State, two of them, Brian Thede and Heather Randell, who both have looked using DHS data, the demographic health survey data, and linking it to environmental data, weather data, including uh, rainfall and extreme temperatures, to look to see how, when they link it to uh, exposures in utero, different trimesters, how that affects body size and early growth. And a lot of that uh, literature is now showing that when a woman is pregnant, depending on the trimester, that has if they are exposed to too much rain or not nearly enough rain, that has implications for their offspring in terms of their growth and development. I think it's a natural extension to think about, well, what's buffering that? Is it actual hydration status? Is it dehydration? Um, is it the stress associated with it? And so those were kind of the questions rumbling around in my head that I, I wanted to try to see if we could unpack in some way. Yeah, so let's get at that unpacking a little bit about the actual data collection. And so I feel like some of your methods are going to be more familiar with our listeners, some of the biomarker collections, you know, urine-specific gravity and things like that. But they might not be quite as familiar with the more qualitative, if you will, of how does one measure thirst perception and the pleasantness of maybe being offered a drink of water kind of thing. Talk us through some of those measures, and then you can we can get into the bio stuff. I used a lot of the methods that had already been validated in some of the nutrition and kinesiology research. And what those are, are visual analog scales. We provided a scale, kind of like a ladder, but it goes from left to right. And it's numbered from one to 10. Um, and each one of them, we put anchors in there. And we, we made sure to validate this and talk to people and make sure that the words associated with where the scale fell ranged in terms of the natural cutoff points of various levels of high, of thirst perception with the Dasanish and with Shimani. So there's a lot of work that went into trying to understand from a cultural perspective, what what is the appropriate word for thirst? What is the appropriate word for a dry mouth? What is the appropriate word for those, for those different types of aspects? Because we we wanted to make sure that we were honing in on the right construct and not have it be misinterpreted, uh, which is easy to do. First, we worked through all those translations, getting the local terms. And then once we did, we, we would, during an interview, before we would do anything, because we wanted to try to get at their actual thirst at the beginning of the interview, instead of like after you interview somebody for an hour, because you know, talking for an hour makes you thirsty, right? <laughs> you're respirating, you're talking, you start to lose body water. The way that we designed the study was we immediately would get urine samples from people. 
And then we would, right after that, we would ask them their current thirst. So we would say like, in this moment, how thirsty do you feel? Ranging from not very, not thirsty at all to extremely thirsty and then anchoring it from one to 10 and just showing them. And then they would, we would have them point to it. So they could kind of show us and where they pointed would relate to that thirst. And that's a validated measure that they've used um, before in the nutrition studies. And we did that in those three different scales related to thirst. And then the next one we thought was increasingly important is, you know, you can ask somebody how thirsty they are, but that might, it's a good indication, right? And all these different scales really highly correlated with each other, which is an, another important point. But then we asked how, in this moment, how pleasant would it be to drink some water? Thinking that the thirstier a person is, or maybe if they're not even perceiving that they're thirsty, but thinking about their water needs and whatnot, they would, they would respond. And so we would ask, yeah, in this moment right now, how, how pleasant would it be to drink some water? And then they would point. It also has just a ridiculous psychological effect as like, as you talk about, like, I need to drink some water. I know. I was watching as you, as you <laughs> described that, I was thinking about my own thirst, so what I would say, and then watching, <laughs> watching you drink. Um, but I was also thinking how important this is and, and, and the points that you make in your, your paper about how, uh, a lot of the previous research has been done in weird samples. So white educated or Western educated, industrial rich democratic societies. It reminds me of our, our, the, the episode that just came out with Lynette Sievert, how she talked about asking women across cultures about hot flashes and how shocked they were to discover that what they described and what people were perceiving were so different and that that cultural uh, qualitative stuff that that we know is important for what we do is is important, right? It's always it's always sort of like highlighted in these interviews that the, the cultural piece of being an anthropologist is is important. Shocking, I know, but but thank you for for highlighting that because I know it takes a lot of work to to get those methods nailed down on the fly in the field before you can even answer a question like this, which is the one that you set up. How does hydration status relate to the perception of per the, the water pleasantness or drinking pleasantness? So, so what did you find? This was quite surprising. And in fact, what we found was that a person's perceived thirst was not associated with their hydration status. So we found that it, it, there was a bit of uncoupling. Part of that can be because where we're doing this research is in really hot environments where people are frequently very dehydrated because of the, the extreme heat. So we didn't see a strong relationship between a person's current thirst and their perceived thirst with their urine-specific gra gravity, which is a biomarker of hydration status and compares the density of urine to the density of water. So what about the, uh, the, two, the Chamani and Dasanach? So was there cultural very, did you see cultural differences? Yeah, and that was another surprising thing uh, was that we found that the Chimani had significantly higher thirst levels than the Dasanich overall, and that the relationship between the ambient temperature, like the heat index, the heat stress, was very strong for the Dasanich, but not as strong in the Chimani. And we think that's because in hot, humid environments, it's a lot harder to, to cool off because sweat evaporation doesn't work quite in the same way. You know, you, you get sweaty and then you just kind of like covered in it. Um, so we would see with the, with the Chimani, their relationship between their perceived thirst and the ambient temperature 
would go up early and then it just kind of stayed elevated. Whereas with Dasanish in this hot, dry environment, we just saw a linear increase. So like as it got hotter, their perceived thirst went up, which is what we would expect. But then um, overall, yeah, there were cross-cultural differences. And we think that's due to the type of extreme thermal environment, the hot, humid compared to the hot, dry. And then maybe you could also go into how the prenatal exposure works into this and the prenatal exposure, given this hot, humid versus hot, dry, and how that's different between the two populations. Uh, that was, you know, one of the, the key motivating factors. So I wanted to ask a lot of these different, you know, sub questions within thirst, just because there hasn't been much done in human biology. So, you know, we were asking, you know, how, how do, how does current hydration status associate with it? How does body composition? How does age? Because we know that there's a decoupling of thirst as a person gets older. Like, do we see those same patterns that people talk about in the, in, you know, weird settings? But a prime motivator for me when, you know, I was like thinking about all this was really about these early life experiences and exposures. So the way that we tried to get at it, and it's not perfect and we needed more work on it, was thinking about season of birth. So when a person was born and then having to go back, and, and this took a little bit of like mental gymnastics, was to go back and we downloaded historical rainfall data for the different months of the year for both sites and then tried to, by averaging when a person was born, so they were, if they were born in the wet season or the dry season, and, and they did it, an additional complication to this is that while Bolivia does have distinct dry and wet seasons, in Kenya, there's two rainy seasons. There's like a short one and then a long rainy season. So I had to go through and try to estimate, you know, the average by going back and doing like time averaging of the rainfall data over the months for people in both sites and calculate how much available water there would have been via rainfall if you're born in the wet season or the dry season. And the other thing that's you know not intuitive is that if you were born in the wet season in both Kenya and Bolivia, that actually means that they were exposed to less water availability in utero because their time in utero corresponds to being in utero during longer part of the dry season. So it's almost the inverse. And we calculated out, it out. And for Dasanich, being born in the wet season was associated with 20% less water availability. And for the Chamani, it was associated with like 30%. However, there's a, a very you know interesting component to this that I'll, I'll get to in a minute. The big finding was that we found a significant interaction between season of birth and the relationship between ambient temperature and perceived thirst. So people who were born during the wet season, that is they were in utero during less water availability, had a blunted thirst perception with hotter temperatures. So as it got hotter, their thirst perception would go up, but not nearly as strong as those who were born during more water availability when they were born in the dry season. The way that we're trying to think through some of those findings, these in utero experiences prime an individual for what the environment may look like when they're born. And so if they're in utero during a time when there's drought, when there's less water availability, or it's a very hot environment, that can send signals to the fetus 
that, hey, you need to do whatever you can to conserve body water. A smaller body size is also associated with this in animal models. Smaller body sizes are associated with less water needs. And so overall, you know, this has the implication of saying that these brain thirst set points can be affected potentially by these early life experiences. So this seems to support any fetal programming or dohad theoretical model, which is which is fascinating. And and so what this tells me, this paper is going to be another Asher paper that 700 grad students go to because it it's resplendent with new questions. I think more as much as it is about answers. So I want to ask you instead of asking you to tell us what you have found to tell us what new questions have been set up by the study. Like what are the things that we now can ask given this model? And this is a a, a nice transition for who could be addressing some of these questions. You have a field school that you're setting up. I assume there are opportunities for students to come in. So I wonder what you see as the the next step for this project and all these, what are all these questions you've now set up that we can address with regard to thirst? I think some of the future questions with this, A, are going to involve some pretty intensive longitudinal studies. Uh, I think that that is something that is going to be paramount to be able to have a clearer picture of how, a clearer picture of people's experiences, especially women who are pregnant, their exposures. So having better linked data of what their actual water availability when they're pregnant their experiences with heat stress are during the different trimesters and then the birth outcomes and then tracking their kids long-term. So I think a lot of the cohort studies are kind of in really good places to try to think through some of those questions, especially in different environments. And and I want to kind of highlight that as an important finding as well, that why we think we see these results among the Dasanich, but not necessarily among the Chimani is well, even if it's hot and there's less water availability, if you're born in the wet or rainy season for the Chimani in lowland Bolivia, this is still a water abundant area, a very water rich area. So just because there was, you were in utero during less water availability doesn't mean that there's no water around, right? There's still a lot of water. Whereas if you're living in a very dry environment, those small differences can actually make a big difference. So I think some of the future questions that a lot of you know students could try to unpack with regard to cross-cultural variation ties into this idea of proprioception and uh, ties into this idea of how we perceive our body. I, I know this is something you've thought a lot about as well, Chris, uh, in terms of, well, what is the connection between the mind and the body, the way our physiology acts, and how do different cultures interpret that? I, as I was digging into the literature to try to understand, like, well, do I, with my upbringing and my history, have the same perception of thirst as somebody living in a completely different part of the world that has different set of exposures and environment, early life environment? Are there different cultural traditions that affect the way that we perceive, you know, dehydration and a fast heartbeat? And what does that tell us, right? And what does that us to do in terms of behavior. So I think that trying to unpack some of those um, questions and perceptions will be important. And in terms of the field school, so we we have a National Science Foundation Research Experiences for Undergraduates Field School. We ran the first 
NSF REU program this past summer. It was really successful. We started integrating human biology into that in 2019. And then last year was the first NSF REU year of it. So this coming summer and then the following summer, we have funding with this grant these next two field seasons. So if you are an undergraduate who's not graduating this uh, this coming semester, like May 2023, but so basically if you're a third year or junior, you can apply if you're a U.S. citizen, because that's the NSF rule. And in particular, we're really trying to increase research opportunities for undergraduates who do not have research experiences at their home universities, potentially, or they're from underrepresented backgrounds. So we're trying to increase the pipeline of human biology students in training and getting them into STEM and human biology and biological anthropology. This is a really cool field school because it links paleoanthropology, archaeology, environmental methods, and human biology, ecology in really fascinating ways. Um, so in the human biology team, it's me and Herman Ponser um, and our students. And then we have paleoanthropologists. It's a, a collaboration between George Washington University and David Braun there, who's the, the overall leader of the field school, and Emmanuel Ndiema at the National Museums of Kenya, who is the field director, and Sarah Fenestra, who's at Harvard University, and she's also one of the field directors. This is like a dream field school. And, and sorry, and Ashley Hammond at the American Museum of Natural History. Can can faculty apply for the REU? You can it's come. Like summer camp. <laughs> you can come. It is a bit like summer camp um, uh, in the sense that we all sleep in our like individual tents. It's pretty hard. Or <laughs> pretty harsh um, uh, uh, conditions. It's pretty pretty hard. But you learn so much. Can imagine? Like it does sound amazing, and it sounds like a wonderful educational opportunity for everyone involved, not even just the the undergraduates. Uh, Asher, I feel like we could probably talk to you for another five hours, uh, but we we've got things going, and I know you want to get for a run. So let's end with our fun question that we always do. So we know you like running. Well, what other sort of fun things do you do that completely complete you? What are you reading, watching, or listening to? Uh-oh, Chris I want to I want, I, I want to interject and ask him, and I meant to say this earlier when he said, like, when he's talking about body water, I felt like we were in Dune. So have you watched or seen or read Dune? Ha, you... What a silly question, Chris. Have I seen it? Have I read it? I live it. I live it. This is me. <laughs> I just wanted uh, to make sure you have a still suit and that your body water. Your, your yeah, I recycle and... my body water. No, the, I think one of the funniest things that has ever happened to me within academia was when I was defending my dissertation after I did the oral defense, it was the, you know, the behind the closed door and, you know, I'm like sweating bullets, losing my body water, thinking, oh my gosh, they're going to grill me. It's going to be so hard. And the, the oral part went really well and the dissertation went well. And I'm sitting there like thinking like, what's, the, what question are they just going to hammer me on and I'm going to fail? And one of my committee members, Ted Gragson, just looks at me and he's like, you know, this really reminds me of Dune. And he goes <laughs> off on this five minute tangent about the still suits and like drinking your own urine and hydration. And I'm sitting there just thinking, I guess this is going well. Like, I'm not going to interrupt him, but this is what we're, what we're talking about. Um, so, yes, I, I actually have read all of the books in the Dune series. 
I read the first six that Brian Hebert wrote or Frank Hebert wrote. And then it took me a while to like finish the last two that his son and the, the other author um, wrote just cause I, it, you know, changing authors, but yeah, love it. So great. So excited for the second part of mm-hmm. the first book, which mm-hmm. you know, the Dune movie was. But besides Dune, after Chris <laughs> derailed us, <laughs> uh, because I, I, you know, I have chatted that you like spy novels or mystery yeah, spy yeah. novels. I, I love things? spy novels. Um, you know, I've been reading Dune a lot. So that's also that. I like John Lacar, Eric Ambler, uh, A Coffin for Demetrius. A, a Coffin for Demetrios is another really awesome spy novel that I, I, for some reason I have this, not only do I tell bad jokes and bad puns, I come up with really terrible ditties. So I was reading this book and Kelly's like, oh, my partner, she's like, what are you reading? And I was like, A Coffin for Demetrios, A Coffin for Demetrios. <laughs> so I, like, I find it amazing that you doing? don't. <laughs> I find it amazing you don't have a cat because my partner and I do have a cat. Oh, like we make up ditties about our cats constantly. Uh We do that with dogs too. Like anyone with a pet, you make up songs about those animals. You can't. And they have specific voices. Oh, they do. Yeah. Yeah. We've also assigned specific political affiliations to our cats as well. (laughs) We have long discussions about who they would vote for. (laughs) Yeah. We We have a libertarian chihuahua. Yeah. Oh, we've got a libertarian, too, who always begrudgingly votes Democrat because, you know, he's going for the greater good. <laughs> so what, what, what's going to be in your earbuds there when you're running, Asher? I, I don't listen to anything. I just listen to my body. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. When, oh, when I go running, that's, that's actually the time in which I do my best thinking. So mm. almost all of the paper ideas and grants that I've written and stuff, they all coalesce when I'm running. So that's how I work through problems. And it's one of the reasons why I really enjoy running is because it is something that you get a break from the computer, you get a break from listening to things, and you're just more attuned to the environment and your body. So do you voice text the ideas or do you just run home and write them all down real fast? It's hilarious that you say that. So I did this eight miler in the mountains about 15 minutes from my house's really fun um, trail run up into the mountains. And I had an idea for the conversation piece that I ended up running. And I'm, you know, after eight miles, it it was April or or March, you know, I'm like sweaty. I put my phone on the little dashboard thing and I go to the, the memo and I just said everything that was in my head. And then I got home and I played that on Google Docs with the voice to text. And it wrote the first draft of it, and then I, I had to edit it. And I don't do that a ton, but I definitely will record ideas. Although I will say that for every um, awesome idea that turns into a paper, about 10 of, the, 10 of the runs, I'm like, oh, that was so brilliant. And I'll come in, and I'll write like five notes, and then it's like, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Oh, I have that's all those nice same experiences. For, like, people to get. It is, but I have a colleague who is a who is so good at voice texting uh, because she used to train uh, bobcats and dogs at, in a as a circus person. Yes, this is an amazing story, and she so she speaks in a way that's very precise for animals to understand. So she's really good at talking to Siri, and she can write a whole paper that way. She'll do the same thing and and then sit down and let it and, and just be able to edit it. And I, I, that's, and that's exactly why I asked you that question, because I aspire to that. So thank you for that. 
And thank you for, for everything. It's been a great conversation. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. It's, it's fun to catch up again. I mean, I just saw Kara like yesterday. So. <laughs> it's been a long time. Less than 24 hours yeah. ago, yeah. Um, right. But yeah, we always enjoy having you on the show. And again, we could probably, we could just probably have you on the show weekly and still have new material every single time. Um, yeah, just come on, tell a bad joke and then leave. Oh, that'd be go. amazing. New we segment. Could have, we could have a bit. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you, Asher. Yeah, it was a pleasure. It was great to see you both. Good luck with finishing the semester. Yeah, yeah enjoy you your run. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.